Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you. We continue our series today on confession, and we're going to take a look at a concept that's a little bit more foreign. That's penance, that somehow satisfaction or making up for the damage we've caused is a really important part of the sacrament, and I'm I'm glad that I'm digging into it today. All right. I pray that everything is uh, well with you guys. And as we continue our series on confession, the five sentences that will heal your life. God bless. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, back to Sound Insight. Well, when I, uh, in putting together this uh, book and this series on confession and thinking about the five sentences, I did it, I'm sorry, forgive me, I will make up for it and I'll never do it again. I'm now at that point in the, in the, in the sentences where there's a kind of a shift. What I mean is, that the first three sentences, I did it, I'm sorry, forgive me. These are sentences that I think most Catholics typically get. They, they understand that that's a part of confession. That's a part of going and uh, engaging in the sacrament. I'm now moving into the sentences that are a little more dif- uh, difficult. Uh, people are accustomed, Catholics who have gone to confession, you know, they get the idea, oh yeah, I get a penance. But the concept of penance, I think that's more foreign. Uh, the concept that somehow there's something more that is asked of me in confession uh, that goes beyond the door of the confessional, the door of the reconciliation room. So this week and next week, we are now going to be, if you will, focusing on the movement outside of the confessional, the movement that not leads us, that not so much leads us into the reconciliation room, into the confessional, and not only happens in confession itself, but flows from and leads from the confessional into our daily lives. Today we'll be talking about the fourth sentence that will heal your life, which is, I will make up for it. It's the act of what's called satisfaction. Growing up uh, in Massachusetts, uh, we had a wonderful yard to play in. Well, in the springtime in particular, our yard would get a lot of weeds, dandelions. Um, until one day my dad said to myself and my two brothers, uh, get out there and pick the dandelions, you know, pull the weeds. Well, what did we do? We ran around excitedly and just pulled the heads off the dandelions, thinking that we had done our job. Well, unfortunately, the next week, my dad said, go back out there and pull the dandelions, and there they are, they had returned, right? And sure enough, he had to show us how and what it actually takes to uproot a weed, pulling with great care and and focused effort to get the whole weed. And you know what happens, right? You try to pull that dandelion, snap. If it snaps off and some of that weed, uh, the the hidden root remains, it's just going to grow again. Well, that's a lot like sin. It's a lot like sin in our lives uh, from a couple of perspectives. First of all, sin is appealing. Uh, Let's be very honest. If, If you take a look at the actual experience of sinning, 
one of the reasons why we sin is because we're attracted to it. It looks, it appears, it feels more satisfying than not sinning. (laughs) You think about whether it is some thought you're thinking, whether it's in your words, speaking that juicy gossip versus holding it back, whether it's in some particular action you're doing or action you're avoiding. It's a lot more, it's a lot easier to stay on the couch and watch the television show or waste time on the computer than it is to get up and move myself forward into some spiritual activity that I'm resisting. So whatever it is, sin is often more satisfying and appealing. It's pretty, (laughs) it's like the dandelion, than avoiding it. Uh, But that's where the problem is because it's only at the surface. It's kind of like the third piece of chocolate cake. I didn't really, I didn't need it, and I really didn't even want it, but I was going to get it so that maybe, you know, my brothers weren't going to get it. (laughs) And did I enjoy it? Oh, yeah, at least for a couple of minutes until it landed in my stomach, and then I didn't enjoy it at all. That's like sin. Sin can sink roots in our lives, and we get entangled in our thinking. We get entangled in our desires, and the challenge becomes When I give myself over to what is appealing and pleasing at a surface level in the immediacy of the moment, ends up having an effect that sinks roots in our lives. So that when it comes time to addressing the sin, we have to do more than addressing the fact of our sin. We have to address the results of our sin. And that's what this fourth sentence is all about. I will make up for it. I did it, I'm sorry, forgive me, I'll make up for it, I'll never do it again. It has to do with uprooting. One way of putting it in our tradition is this. Forgiveness, or God's mercy, addresses the effects of sin. Penance, or satisfaction, uproots the causes of sin. That's a very, very important distinction. Why? When we think about going to confession, what do we think about? I've sinned, I'm guilty, and I want to be forgiven. But if that's our focus, then going to confession basically ends as an act when we receive absolution and we walk out the door. But if confession is a healing sacrament, and we focus on that that image, that, that metaphor of sin as a disease, how many times will you go to a doctor who will not only diagnose the condition, and prescribe a medication, but also require some form of physical therapy, some form of action that has to be taken once you leave the doctor's office. And that's part and parcel of getting healed. Now, the church talks about this. Let's see how the catechism puts it. This is in paragraph 1459. Sin injures and weakens the sinner himself, as well as his relationships with God and neighbor. Absolution takes away sin, but it does not remedy all the disorders sin has caused. Raised up from sin, the sinner must still recover his full spiritual health by doing something something more to make amends for his sin. He must make satisfaction for or expiate his sins. This satisfaction is also called penance. There it is, the metaphor of spiritual health. In order to recover spiritual health, more than absolution is needed. What's needed is satisfaction. Now stop and think about how ironically, how how ironic it is that the word that's chosen for penance is satisfaction. (laughs) Why? 
the thing that you think about penance is it's least of all satisfying. There's at least of all, at least very little satisfaction in doing the work of pulling weeds and in doing penances. Um, and you know, what is, what's, what, what is uh, the point of that? Um, we experience a certain kind of satisfaction in sinning itself. That's very different than the satisfaction that's being talked about here. Now, this is connected. I want you to hold on to this. This is a very interesting point. Doing penance or making satisfaction is associated both with justice and mercy. It's associated both with God's justice and with God's mercy. Well, what's justice? Justice is when each gets what is due to him or her. It's about making amends, repairing the harm that was caused. Let me give an example. Uh, I mentioned growing up, well, my brothers would play catch a lot with, with the baseball in the backyard. Well, sometimes maybe I would throw the ball a little wild or maybe my brother missed it and what would happen? The ball would end up going through a window, smash. <laughs> the ball went through the window, mom. And what would we say? Mom, I did it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And my mom or dad would say, I forgive you. You will make up for it. <laughs> and you will never do it again, right? What would they say? They would say, well, we do forgive you, but you will make up for it. You've caused some damage, and now you're going to have to make up for that damage. How? Well, you'll take on extra chores. You'll do extra work. And you'll therefore be paying for the replacement of the window. You'll make up for the damage that you've caused. That's what's meant by satisfaction is associated with justice. And so when we say we'll make up for damage that we've caused, sometimes that's associated with making up for the damage that we've done against other people. But satisfaction or doing penance is also about mercy. Listen to what the catechism says. The catechism is going to bring out the truth that when we do penance, we don't act alone, but we are acting in union with Jesus Christ, who in fact has done the perfect act of penance, the perfect act, the complete act of expiation of our sins, the satisfaction, uh, the making up for all the damage that sin causes. When did he do that? On the cross. So doing penance is a way that we can actively choose union with Christ at his point of crucifixion. Being linked with Jesus Christ crucified is, a, is what our penance gives us the opportunity to do. Listen to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1460. The Catechism says, such penances help configure us to Christ, configure, unite us, link us, uh, bond us, uh, uh, forge a union between us and Christ. Christ, who alone expiated our sins once for all. Our penance allow us, our penances allow us to become co-heirs with the risen Christ, provided we suffer with him. Yeah, penance is not enjoyable. Penance hurts. Penance is a denial or a death to self. It's a spiritual training of self that we do not like. It is not very satisfying, but it is configuring us to the death of Christ so that, that the so that is so critical here, so that the life of Christ can emerge more fully in us. 
so that the resurrected Christ, the new life of Christ, shines forth more fully. In other words, as we are uprooting that which is sinful, that which is hurting us spiritually, what remains is a blossoming of what is healthy for our spiritual lives, what is supernatural, what is godly in our spiritual lives. So penances become a critical means to literally allowing the blossoming of the spiritual life, of the life of Christ in us. So listen to what the Catechism continues to say in 1460. The satisfaction that we make for our sins is not so much ours as though it were not done through Jesus Christ. We who can do nothing ourselves, as if just by ourselves, can do all things with the cooperation of him who strengthens us, Christ himself. Thus, man who has uh, nothing of which to boast, but all our boasting is in Christ, in whom we make satisfaction by bringing forth fruits that befit repentance. That's another quote from the scriptures. These fruits have their efficacy from Jesus. By him they are offered to the Father, and through Jesus they are accepted by the Father. Now, what is that saying? It's saying that Jesus not only promises to show us mercy, if you remember that Mark 1, 40 to 45 passage where the leper approaches Jesus and Jesus draws out of the leper all that is shameful and sinful, all that isolates Christ, all that isolates the leper from, from God, from himself, from his family, from his community. Jesus draws that all on himself and gives to the man salvation. That is the act of mercy. Jesus in his mercy to us also then draws us into that very, uh, that very mystery of his suffering and death on the cross. Out of his love for us, he draws us into his own death. Why? Because when we are drawn into his death, when we are drawn into union with him on the cross, he's saying, buckle up, we're going for a ride. We're going on the biggest roller coaster in the world. We're gonna descend down into death and then woohoo, we're going to come and we're going to rise up and out and we are going to be drawn all the way through the resurrection into heaven, into that destiny that he intends for us. So the act of being drawn close to the cross of Christ is an act of mercy. It's out of love for us that he's saying, when I call you to do penance, I'm asking you to embrace a cross. And whenever you embrace a cross, you're embracing me, the one who suffered and died on that cross, because in embracing me at my point of suffering, you're latching on, you're linking in with the path to your own salvation, the path to that blossoming of new life in you. Now, I, I think this is so important because Christ doesn't simply want us to be forgiven of our sins. He wants us to be victorious over sin. Did you hear that? not only forgiven of our sins, but victorious over sins. You go to confession, you, you say, I did it, you accuse yourself, you do it with sorrow rooted in love, and you, in fact, ask for forgiveness, you'll be forgiven. But the challenge is not to settle for weeds in the yard at all. I want to uproot all that is not honoring to God. I want to uproot everything in my life that fails to to honor my relationship with Christ. 
I'm going to give you a kind of a, a spiritual perspective on it. This isn't always true, but in some people's lives, and at some points of people's lives, you'll find it to be the case that Christ offers you the freedom to choose a cross. And if you choose that cross, you'll be choosing that union with Christ crucified that will lead you to a greater share in his resurrected life, the joy and the peace and the life that comes from that relationship. But if you don't choose the cross freely, the cross just might come to you. <laughs> the cross just might come upon you. And you stop and say, whoa, that sounds, you know, you think of most suffering that comes to our lives, and we think of the act that most good Catholics learned growing up, offer it up. When suffering comes, offer it up. In other words, link it to Christ crucified so that it will bear the fruit of linking you to that new life of Christ and maybe even help bring about the salvation of the world because your suffering is linked to his suffering, which won salvation for the whole world. That's all true. But there's a time and there are places in our lives where the Lord is saying, not simply embrace the suffering that comes to you, but also says, choose a path that will involve some suffering. Wow. Did you hear what I just said? That is not often, <laughs> put it this way, there are nine ways to misunderstand that and there's probably only one way to understand it correctly. So we're gonna make sure we understand that correctly because what I'm not gonna say is go out there and seek suffering, okay? Because it's gonna find you. So I'm not saying go seek suffering, but I am saying seek a life of union with Jesus Christ crucified and that also will involve penance, okay? Let's take a look at how penance actually touches confession, and then we'll talk about penance outside of confession. First of all, in confession. When I think about the act of um, penance, where does that tend to show up, or where does it show up? Well, it shows up after I accuse myself of what I've done, uh, and what I say is, uh, I'm sorry, uh, and then the priest offers me some counsel, and then he'll say, for your penance, say, Three Our Fathers, Two Hail Marys. Or, uh, and, and that's what penance is. That's what most of us tend to think, beginning and end. That's what penance is, is saying those prayers. And um, that's maybe a more sort of a traditional way of hearing penances. You might hear something like, spend some quiet time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Or uh, go do this nice deed or this sacrificial act for someone else. Um, well, what's that all about? What's the purpose of penance in the sacrament itself? And then let's take a little bit of a look at how that penance that's given to us can connect back to our lives. So first of all, the catechism, again, I'm relying a lot on the catechism, you can see, in paragraph 1460, it says this about, the pen uh, about penance. The penance the confessor imposes must take into account the penitent's personal situation and must seek his spiritual good. It must correspond as far as possible with the gravity and nature of the sins committed. It can consist of prayer and offering, works of mercy, service of neighbor, voluntary self-denial, sacrifices, and above all, the patient acceptance of the cross we must bear. Now, when you hear that, you hear a number of the, the points I've just been making, especially the last point. Somehow penance associates us with the cross of Christ but it gets broken down in confession to, to details. 
works of mercy, you know, offering counsel, uh, reaching out and, and uh, helping someone who is, um, is confused or disturbed, uh, serving our neighbor, voluntary self-denial. You know, these are all practical things, but you notice the principle. The two principles are take into account the penitent's personal situation. Are they young? Are they old? Are they coming back to the church? Are they growing in faith? Are they mature in the spiritual life? As well as seeking his spiritual good, and then that it should correspond to the gravity and nature of the sins committed. In other words, the more serious the sins committed, well, the, the, the heavier, if you will, the penance, the more serious the penance should be, as well as the particular type of sin committed might correspond to the penance. In fact, um, in my experience, in, 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 let's say in recent decades, uh, the penances that, that I will tend to receive are more associated with the sins that I've committed. I won't tell you what they are. But um, let's just say that um, I think that priests are more often trained now to associate a penance to the kind of sin that's committed. So if someone is committing, uh, confessing the sin of pride, they might be asked to um, spend some time focusing on thanksgiving in prayer, thanking God as the, as the source of all the good gifts that he or she has received in his or her life, right? So that overcomes the sense of I'm independent and I'm on my own. Or if the person is saying uh, and confessing, I'm so busy, I'm leaving out God, that person might be given a penance of take five or 10 minutes in quiet before the Blessed Sacrament before you leave the church today, or do that twice this week. If the person is uh, struggling with sins of speech, that person might be asked to um, do a penance associated with um, saying kind words, or speaking uplifting things, or restraining themselves from speaking words of gossip. Things like that. Or if the person's sins are associated with accessing the computer or television or the movies, it might be restraining themselves or limiting themselves regarding the kind of uh, movies they'd see or the time they spend on it. You get the idea. You're connecting the penance to the nature of the sin and the severity of the sin. Now this also can play, uh, this also can play a part or take a role in understanding the effect or the damage that sin causes. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com. drtomcurran.com. St. Philip Neri, uh, uh, 16th century saint. So during the time of the Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation, uh, he was the apostle of Rome and uh, was a man full of joy, but he was a man who was serious about the spiritual life. The guy was known for the, the great amount of joy that he would cause or, or would stir up when people were around him. And yet there's a story about a woman who confessed to him an ongoing struggle with gossip. And so he heard her confession and then he took her to the top of the church, his church, um, the Chiesa Nuova, the new church. Uh, in Rome. We took him to the top and she could see the city. He had a feather pillow with him 
And he had her empty the pillow and all the feathers just flew in every direction. And he said, for your penance, go pick up all the feathers. And she's like, you're kidding. <laughs> Is this a joke? And, um, uh, and, and his point was, do you understand the damage that gossip causes? You know, she was like, there's no way I can pick up all the feathers that gone off in every direction. How can I possibly get all, collect all those feathers and bring them back into the pillow? And this point was you can't just like you, the damage you caused by sowing seeds of gossip, you're destroying someone's reputation and it's out of your control, the damage that that's going to cause someone's life. Now, I honestly don't know if, they, they don't tell you the rest of the story if the woman actually was asked to attempt to fulfill the penance. But you can see the seriousness with which St. Philip addressed the concept of not only being forgiven, but taking seriously the, the, the call to make up for the damage that sin causes. And how penance was seen as the powerful means of uprooting the causes of sin in our lives. One way of saying it is this, how long are you gonna settle for less in your spiritual life? How long are you gonna settle for less than the very standard of holiness that God asks of you? And it's not about feeling guilty about saying, oh, I'm, I'm not meeting God's requirement, but rather, how long are you going to settle for so little of God's joy, settle for so little of union with God and, and the life and the freedom and, and the, the peace that God is so abundantly, uh, has abundantly held in store for you? He wants to increase your capacity to, to welcome his life and his joy and his love in you. But as long as you settle for less, with any sin in your life, you're crowding out and entangling and diminishing the life of God in you. You're going to weaken your sense of identity and you're going to weaken the capacity and the radiating power of accomplishing the mission through the radiating power of God's life and God's holiness in you. You know, it, it's that kind of settling for less I'm talking about. I, when, I think about um, when I think about these messages of, I did it, I'm sorry, forgive me, I'll make up for it, I'll never do it again. Uh, I think that this is one of those messages that is least addressed today. The concept of doing penance. Doing penance. And, it, and it's, it's a kind of a, um, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing to reflect on because it's... Um, because this is kind of uh, uh, extremes. We live in a time associated with extremes in our thinking on this. Because on the one hand, if you ever hear someone start bringing up the idea that we should seriously consider doing more penance through things like denying ourselves some of the pleasurable things that are part of our lives, some of the things that bring us comfort and ease, and even start training our body spiritually through things like fasting, well, there's this immediate sense of kind of like a pendulum swinging to an extreme. Are you talking about flagellating yourself to the point of blood? Are you talking about wearing this 
this uh, iron, uh, you know, or this metal uh, kind of, uh, I don't remember what it's called, uh, this metal thing that has, will stick prongs or kind of nails into your arm or your leg as a way of disciplining yourself. Are you talking about that? There's an immediate sense of swinging to an extreme. You know, when we're at one extreme, when we try to propose a movement towards the middle, there's this swing towards the other extreme. I've, that's the sense I have. We almost never talk about it. We just are left, here's a way of saying it, we're left comfortably in the pigsty. We're left comfortably to sit in the mud when what the Lord is calling us to is a feast. We're left at the fast food restaurant when the Lord wants us to dine sumptuously uh, on, on, on the highest of spiritual goods. Um, and yet, at the same time, we live in a moment that has focused so intensively on getting in shape physically. So whether it is focusing on losing weight and dieting through pills or through programs or through uh, some form of uh, operation or, or the exercise part, the, the chase after physical perfection through uh, workout systems and uh, uh, training systems and the biggest loser. And, you know, there's this incredible fascination with the achievement of some kind of physical perfection and the, the peak health, the peak of physical health. And yet when we would, and we'd be willing to undergo all kinds of acts of self-denial, all kinds of acts of choosing what is not comfortable and denying of ourselves and undergoing physical training, is there a comparable uh, interest or attempt to understand how to do that in the spiritual life? I want to say at least in the United States, the answer is no. The answer is you, you talk about that spiritually and you're an extremist that wants to bring back these old, uh, unhealthy uh, practices that were rooted in a sense of hatred of the body and of, of the denial of the good, uh, the good things of this earth. That's the, that's the typical way that it's, it's approached in our time, and yet simultaneously, there's this incredible willingness to engage in the same kind of acts of self-denial and of training of the body for the sake of being at the peak of one's own health. I just think that's fascinating. And yet, if we take a look and say, well, where do we get, if we're gonna avoid the pendulum swing, where do we get a sense of what our tradition actually will throw in front of us to say, Here's another perspective on how penance is associated with spiritual growth. Here's another take on how penance is associated with spiritual um, vivacity, being alive spiritually. Well, let's turn to St. John of the Cross. Uh, if we wanna look to a great spiritual doctor of the church, spiritual doctor, someone who's gonna give us a good diagnosis and good insight, good teaching, uh, let's listen to what St. John of the Cross says. And I'm actually gonna quote uh, from a book by Hans Urs von Balthasar, who summarizes uh, the uh, one section, actually one chapter of The Ascent of Mount Carmel, uh, one of the most famous books of St. John of the Cross, where he's describing the growth in the spiritual life. And this is what he says. Now listen carefully, because this is pretty striking. <laughs> and see how, let's see how many homilies you've heard that have this as its primary message. 
And listen to what he's going to do. He's going to associate the acts of penance with union with Christ. According to the ascent of Mount Carmel, book one, chapter 13, the foundation of all spiritual life is the habitual desire to imitate Christ in all things. Well, we have that, right? What would Jesus do with the imitation of Christ? The desire, the habitual desire to imitate Christ in all things. Yeah, that seems like the foundation of all spiritual life. Got it. Well, how? <laughs> Listen to what John of the Cross says. By mortification and renunciation of self for the love of Christ, who in his life on earth had no other gratification nor desired any other than the fulfillment of his Father's will, which he called his meat and food. And this mortification begins with the active choice and preference of the more difficult instead of the easier, the less pleasant instead of the gratifying, the unconsoling instead of the consoling, of the lowest and most despised instead of the higher and more precious. In short, of total poverty in all the things of this world. Oh, <laughs> is that all? How many of you have ever heard or considered that the habitual desire to imitate Christ in all things involves at its foundation the concept of mortification? Mortification means at its root to die, to die to self. Now, this shouldn't be that shocking to us, right? Unless a seed dies, it remains just a seed, but if it dies, it's going to bear fruit in abundance because now it can grow and flourish. So the concept of mortification is, is certainly not uh, uh, some kind of marginal part of the message of being a follower of Jesus. Mortification and renunciation of self. Jesus said, unless you renounce your very self, you cannot be my follower. Unless you deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, you will not be my follower. Each and every day you're asked to deny yourself and pick up your pillow. No, wait a minute. Pick up your pillow. No, no. Pick up your cross. So these are not hidden or tangential or marginal parts of the message of Christ. They're at the core. They're at the heart. Why? Well, unless I am willing to die to my self, die to that I that is in me, guess who I'm going to put first in my life? That would be myself. There's one throne in my life. Who gets to sit on my throne? Unless I'm willing to step off that throne, and unfortunately, more often in our lives, it comes when we get dethroned by being knocked off the throne. <laughs> uh, we're not willing just to step down on our own. Why? I don't like to die. It doesn't feel good. Having to deny those desires that are in me towards what is easy, comfortable, and naturally satisfying if, I, if my default setting, if my first inclination is to say, if I'm drawn towards it and it, it feels easy and comfortable and consoling, then I'm choosing it. Welcome to the 21st century. 
But if it's, you know what? If I'm finding that that's easy and comfortable and it leaves me very consoled, I'm going to restrain myself from it. I'm going to say no to that. And I'm actually going to choose that which I don't find consoling, first of all. I don't find easy, first of all. I don't find comfortable, first of all. Well, if that's the whole of the story, then welcome to a world that's marked by the hatred of the person. But if I choose that out of love for Christ, did you hear that? If I choose it out of love for Christ, if I choose it out of a desire to be in union with Christ, then I'm coming to realize the, the fundamental drama of the human condition, which is I'm made for God, I'm made for that relationship with God, and in Christ I can have that relationship with God. But in me are also these pulls and these desires towards sin, towards continuing to bolster myself as the center of my own well-being, as the center of my own, uh, my own desires for fulfillment that bolsters the self rather than submits the self, surrenders the self, gives the self. I mean, come on now, this isn't, this isn't a challenging thing for us to grasp mentally. We get this. The, the, the drama of every day. Am I living for myself or am I living for, for God and for those God's put into my life? If you don't get it, just get married. Then you'll get it. If you really don't get it, have kids. Then you'll really get it. Right? Am I living for myself or am, if I'm living for myself and what is easy, comfortable, and consoling, then you know what? I better stay far from my kids because being drawn near to my kids, like last night, came home, I had a long day. Worked 12 hours. And when I walked in at the end of those 12 hours, guess what my kids said? Dad, we know how tired you are. We're just going to give you a couple of hours of ease and comfort so you can just choose what you want. And then after that, if you have any time and energy left for us, could we just have a couple of minutes of your time? No, that's not how it worked. I walked in and they wanted total attention, positive attention. They wanted, my, they wanted to see in my eyes that I was there for them and that there was no greater joy that I could find in that moment than to give them my best attention, my care, my engagement, my personal presence and action. That's what was asked of me in that moment. And so what was asked of me was not what I was gonna find pleasing, comfortable, desirable, or consoling at one level, but out of love for them to choose another kind of joy, a kind of joy that would deny the pursuit of what I would ordinarily at a surface level find comfortable, consoling, enjoyable, but rather to die to those things and to choose what is going to bring my kids joy, what's going to bring them life, what's going to celebrate them, what's going to make them come alive. And I'm grateful to God for the daily opportunity to choose the joy that comes out of self-giving to the point of self-sacrifice, which is a deeper kind of joy than the joy that comes through the satisfaction of my own desires, the choosing of my own comfort. That is a, if we don't get that right, we're missing, we're missing it all. We're missing it all. There are two kinds of joys that you can find in your life. The joy that comes from choosing what would bring you comfort and pleasure and satisfaction and ease, 
and fulfillment in that sensory level. And you know what? That's, that's a kind of joy you can know, but it's not a lasting joy. The deeper joy is the joy that is the fruit of self-giving love. Self-giving love to the point of self-sacrifice. And you know what? I don't got it on my own. I don't have the strength to do that on my own. It's Jesus Christ who's alive in me and in you that calls us to that. What are penances? Penances are all about being willing to choose the more difficult instead of the easier. It's more difficult to wake up early and to help get my house clean so that when my kids and my wife wake up, they're gonna wake up to a house that's clean and in order. That's um, to choose the less pleasant instead of the gratifying. It'd be more gratifying to go right to bed, but it would, be, uh, it would be more gratifying to go right to bed. It's less pleasant to stay up and to get on my knees and pray a rosary or to pray for those who have needs right now because I'm tired and I wanna to get to bed. But to choose the less pleasant rather than the gratifying is the path to union with Christ and the path to life. To choose the unconsoling rather than the consoling. To choose to say, you know what? I'm gonna turn off the TV. I don't have to watch that basketball game, but instead I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna play Candyland with my kids. That's not very consoling to me, but you know what? It brings life to my kids. To choose the lowest and the most despised instead of the higher and the more precious means, you know what? I don't have to draw attention to the things that I'm doing. I don't have to be applauded or acknowledged or make that visible. Instead, let it remain hidden, hidden acts of service, things that go unsaid rather than said. That's choosing the humble path of saying, my life isn't about me, it's about Christ. Now, I'm spending a lot of time on this because you've probably never heard it before. Or very rarely do you hear homilies that talk about Penance in two forms. Penance as mortification, which is that sense of dying to self, and penance as asceticism, which comes from a Greek word that means training, spiritual training. You know, but this is not foreign to our tradition. So after the Council of Trent, seminaries grew up. And when they trained priests, they needed to train them in a systematic way. So they developed a, a way of teaching theology that was based on what were called manuals or uh, treatises. And some themes would be treated with other themes. So for instance, the treatise on God would be broken up into two, uh, two manuals. God is one and God is three. Or another treatise would be on faith and reason. Well, there was a treatise that was associated with the spiritual life and spiritual growth. It was called mystical theology. But this treatise was taught in connection with another manual. It was called ascetical theology. In other words, you're not gonna be able to walk down the path of spiritual growth unless you are hand in hand linked with a growth and understanding and embracing of the path of asceticism, of spiritual training. What I'm gonna to propose to you is that we don't have a lot of mystics today. Why? Because we don't have a lot of ascetics today. Because we've become weakened in our embracing of the path of penance, of mortification and of asceticism, we are weak in terms of growth in our spiritual lives. 
we would have greater spiritual maturity if we were willing to choose a greater life of penance. And we've settled for intensity in spiritual things, but that's no replacement for profundity or depth. In fact, I think that mysticism without asceticism is the slogan for today. I think what what that leads to is a chase for spiritual experiences without the resulting spiritual maturity. So we want to have spiritual experiences without spiritual maturity. And that's what happens in an age that does not understand, does not embrace, and even rejects penance. How do we live a confessional life of penance? What does that look like? Well, in our tradition, there's a season associated with penance, Lent. And what does the season of penance bring up for us? Traditional forms of penance, prayer, fasting, almsgiving. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving. Why? Why those three? There are three causes of sin in our tradition, and prayer, fasting, and almsgiving are three approaches to penance that make up for the damage caused by these three causes of sin. What are the three causes? The pride of life, the concupiscence of the flesh, and the concupiscence of the eyes. Well, the pride of life is what? Uh, Is associated with... um, the unwillingness to humble ourselves and submit to God. And so through prayer, prayer is linking us to God, we are going to uproot pride of life. So through prayer, we're uprooting the pride of life. Well, what about the concupiscence of the flesh? Well, that has to do with the pull that the pull of those sins that are associated with our bodies. So think of things like uh, gluttony, lust, pornography, adultery. So fasting is about the sins associated with the body. What about almsgiving? Well, almsgiving is associated with uprooting the concupiscence of the eyes. That Well, what, what's the concupiscence of the eyes? Well, when we, through our eyes, we are able to see the things of the world around us, the goods of the world in our desire for them, in our attachment to them over an attachment to God. So through almsgiving, what are we doing? We're extending ourselves in love towards others in a way that helps bring them to life in an expression of the love of God that gives birth to a love of neighbor with the very love of God. So now we're loving them and extending ourselves towards them rather than with our eyes engaging in some kind of attachment to a sin like envy, right? I'm sad over their good. I don't celebrate a good that's come to their life but it makes me feel saddened. So now I'm going to actually extend myself to bring a good to their lives. So almsgiving. So prayer, fasting, and almsgiving are three ways of uprooting the causes of sin that touch our lives. Well, each of these could take a book. And prayer and almsgiving, I think, are two that often get talked about. Almsgiving is talked about in terms of stewardship. Prayer, there are dozens of books on prayer. So I want to talk about fasting because it's a very concrete way of doing penance. Um, You know, I think that, uh, again, if we look at our age, people will say, well, after the Second Vatican Council, didn't we give up on fasting? Isn't that something that we don't have to do anymore? Well, the requirements for fasting have been reduced, reduced to two days a year, right? What are the two days a year that fasting is, hear the word, required? Well, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. 
Then there are required days of abstinence. What are the required days of abstinence? Fridays and Lent. But then there are recommended practices. There are recommendations like, for instance, certain bishops' conferences have recommended abstaining from meat on every Friday of the year or as a spiritual practice, as a way of uh, an act of justice, of linking ourselves to Christ and to the poor uh, or for the sake of life. Um, but um, fasting as a whole, I think the, the typical Catholic is thinking that, oh, yeah, yeah, since Vatican II, the church has really dismissed fasting. It hasn't dismissed it. It's changed the requirements, but continued to strongly make recommendations. So, for instance, here's a document from Pope Paul VI where he talks about the value of fasting. Uh, this is a document called Penitimini. There you go. How's that for a document? It says Apostolic Constitution on Fasting and Abstinence. came out just a couple months after the Second Vatican Council. And he says, one fasts or applies physical discipline to chastise one's own soul, to humble oneself in the sight of his own God, to turn one's face toward Jehovah, to dispose oneself to prayer, to understand more intimately the things which are divine, or to prepare oneself for an encounter with God. Did you hear that? Did you hear all those benefits that come from fasting? Well, let me give you just a couple of thoughts about fasting. First of all, you're not gonna understand fasting until you actually fast. You're not gonna get this talk. You won't understand it until you actually try to fast. Second, you won't understand just how deep your attachment to food is until you fast and fail at fasting. Did you hear that? When you actually start fasting, when you actually choose a day when you're going to fast, all of a sudden you're gonna start realizing how much my body is actually directing my behavior. We'll also realize that, um, when I've got, I'll just talk about three other things and then I'll just stop. Um, you'll realize that fasting is a weapon of the powerless. That's a real a striking insight. When you're faced with worldly situations or spiritual attack and you're powerless in front of them, fast. Fasting literally is a way of turning to God in your poverty and your powerlessness and God moves. All I can say is you look at the scriptures and time after time, it's the powerless one who's fasting as a sign of the absolute desperation for God to move and what happens, God moves. Fasting also diminishes and clears away much that deadens our spiritual lives. And then lastly, you're not going to be convinced about how correct these statements are until you've actually made a serious effort to incorporate fasting into your spiritual life. Um, a couple of thoughts about fasting in terms of, um, uh, in terms of doing it successfully. Um, choose to fast in a way that um, involves a real sacrifice or challenge, but not one that's so great that it's going to overwhelm you and crush you. So choose to do something that um, is going to be realistic according to your life circumstances. You know, so, uh, so the principle to work with is sufficiency rather than satisfaction. Choose what is sufficient rather than what is satisfying. Fast intentionally. What I mean is on a day when you're going to fast, plan it out. What am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? How much am I going to eat? Where am I going to eat? With whom am I going to eat? If you just think you're going to fast and just allow the day to unfold, you're probably going to fail. 
incorporate some prayer into a day when you're fasting. In other words, if you're going to fast, and that means you're going to eat a much simpler lunch, a, a much, you know, a smaller reduced lunch, incorporate some time of reading scripture. Feed on God's word. And you'll find a link between the idea of restraining yourself from eating, and now it's for the sake of attending to the Lord more intimately in prayer. Next is, think about connecting fasting to almsgiving. So again, these other kinds of penances to uproot other causes of sin. If I'm going to save some money from that eating, let me now give that to someone else. So now I'm actually extending uh, myself uh, on behalf of others through the act of fasting as well. So it takes on a greater meaning. Don't expect fasting to ever get easy, but do expect that the difficulty associated with fasting will become known. It's a known challenge, and we're able to incorporate it. So um, obviously, you can fast from other things than food. You can fast from television, computers, certain kinds of movies. Uh, You can do it out of a choice. Again, you're restraining yourself for the sake of choosing God, choosing Christ. Um, You might choose uh, to do what is not easy or comfortable. Did you hear that? You might choose to sit in the less, least, uh, the less comfortable chair if you have a choice. You might choose to sit up straight rather than lean back. I know those sound like little things, but those are little ways to say, I'm going to choose what is less comfortable rather than more comfortable. Um, you might choose fasting as a way of addressing a social evil like abortion. You know, there's a whole effort out there called 40 Days for Life, and it's an attempt to use prayer and fasting as means of addressing this social evil where we can feel powerless in front of a woman who is in a crisis pregnancy or over legislation and the powers that be that are fighting to keep abortion legal and even spread it and expand it. What power can I have to address that? Well, I have very little power on my own, but I know one who has all power in his hands. And somehow through fasting, I might be linked in with a very effort to release God's power to move minds and hearts and to address situations in ways that I never could on my own. Uh, If you're going to be serious about embracing penance and fasting in your spiritual life, please don't do it alone. Seek after good counsel. Seek after someone that you're going to make visible what you're doing. Be transparent about it with a spiritual director or a priest or someone that you are open to hearing uh, that you trust has a level of spiritual maturity. Why? This kind of spiritual activity is easy to get wrong. It's more difficult to get right and keep in a healthy path. You know, because sometimes we'll experience a certain level of spiritual um, experience or spiritual um, activity growing in us, we might think more is better and we'll lose a sense of moderation or correct path to growth in this. And so having that visible to someone is very important. So don't, if you're going to be serious about this, then be serious about having someone accompany you, someone that you trust and you're willing to listen to, especially, especially a priest or a, spiritual, a trained spiritual director. Lastly, just remember, all acts of penance are not done at your initiative and they're not done primarily, literally by you, but they, your attempts to be drawn into the acts of penance that Christ has already done on the cross. So even though you are taking action and even seemingly taking initiative, realize that your initiative is far behind the Lord's, who may be inviting you into a sharing in his penance through your voluntary activity. 
You're voluntarily joining him on the cross, joining him in acts, joining him in his act of self-sacrifice, and it's manifesting in your sacrifice. Always link it back to Christ. Always link it back to love for him. In other words, if your fasting is not bringing you a sense of closeness to Christ, then you're probably not getting it right. You're probably not getting it right. You might be brought into darkness, and so there's a kind of a dark union with Christ who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that has to be discerned so carefully. So just remember, you do it in relationship to Christ. Okay, I did it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll make up for it, and I will never do it again. If we're going uh, to address the causes of sin in our lives, it's also going to lead to a resolution in our lives, a resolution that says, I will live for God. And that means I will live for God completely now and forever, which means there is no room for sin. But that is going to be left for next week. Thank you so much for joining me in this session. Pray God's blessings upon you. And uh, please join me for the last session. where We'll talk about, I will never do it again. Thanks so much.